morning. Well, my name is Kevin. Oh, that's nice. Oh, wow, it is a full room. That's good. It's good to see you all today. Well, my name is Kevin, and um, uh, as Steve mentioned, for the better part of the last eight years, I've spent a lot of time here at the Noblesville campus, uh, but for the last six months, I've been over at Carmel, and so I haven't been here on Sunday mornings as much, and so I don't have been able to see a lot of you all, and uh, so it's good to be back and to see some familiar faces. Uh, you may know, a little update on our family, uh, you may know that I'm, I'm, I'm married, my wife Paige and I have five children. You may not know that uh, we are, she's pregnant with number six. <laughs> Every time I say that, I think, what are we thinking? Okay, so she is due in six weeks with uh, another uh, little girl. So we're going to have four girls and two boys. And um, listen, I, when I tell people that, people are like, you got six kids. Are you crazy? Or how do you do it? How do you, people say, how do you do it? How do you do it? I'm like, Paige and I always say, we don't. We're not doing it. Like we're, like we're the least qualified people. We're, I'm always worried that like CPS is going to come and go, okay, get these kids out of here. Round them up. Let's, let's go. You two need to get your act together. Like... And if you are a parent, you don't have to be a parent to realize this, but if you are a parent, you know that there's nothing in life like parenting that helps you see and realize your own sin and weaknesses, all right? Nothing like parenting shows you your own flaws and how deeply sinful and selfish you are. And today, I kind of want to address what do we do when we see and we're faced with our sin. We've been, as a church family, throughout this year, we've been reading through the Bible. We're working our way through the Old Testament. And uh, one of the major moments, one of the last major moments or stories in the Old Testament is what we're going to address today. Now, we have quite a bit more reading to do in the Old Testament. If uh, some of you are following along with our reading plan, uh, we don't start in the New Testament for another six to seven weeks. But when it comes to the story of the Israelite people and their journey with God, today we're going to look at a, a pivotal moment that takes place towards the end of their story. And it's found in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 9. If you have your Bibles with you or if you want to grab a hard copy, we have some in the back of the room or I know many of you like to use an app on your phone, but you want to turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. We'll spend our first half there, and then we're going to spend the second half of our message in Romans chapter 7 and 8, looking at some of the words of Paul. Now, before we dive into God's Word, will you pray with me? Let's pray. Father, I am so thankful for your love and your grace. You are a good God, and you demonstrated your goodness and your righteousness and your love uh, throughout the story of the Bible, the biblical story, God. And it uh, reveals your love for us. And so, God, as we open up and we look at Nehemiah and really an overview of the Old Testament story and the good news of Jesus Christ, Father, I pray that you pour out your spirit on us as a church family and that you would open the eyes of our hearts here this morning so that we can see with a fresh and clear, in, a, in a fresh and clear way how glorious of a Father you are and how much you love us in Christ Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen. All right, so let's start by doing a quick kind of summary of the Old Testament story we've been reading through this year. In the opening chapters of Genesis, we see God creating the heavens and the earth and everything in it. He creates man and woman in his image, and they are to rule the world on his behalf. 
but they sin and rebel against God. And their sin leads to just this brokenness in this world full of death in those first several chapters of Genesis that we see. And so the question of the, uh, at the beginning of the biblical story is this, how is God going to rescue His people and restore His world? Well, the answer begins with a man named Abraham. God comes and makes a covenant promise to Abraham. God promises to bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham and his descendants. God is going to rescue his people and restore his world through Abraham's family. And so the rest of the whole Old Testament is the unfolding story between this journey of this journey between God and, his fam and Abraham's family, the Israelites. And so in the book of Genesis, if you keep reading, you can read stories about Abraham's son Isaac and Isaac's son Jacob and Jacob's son Joseph. The second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, picks up the story with Joseph's family. His, his family is multiplied and becomes so numerous, we're told they fill the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh enslaves them, and they're slaves in Egypt. And then comes that pivotal moment in their history, in this story, when God calls Charlton Heston to rescue them from Egypt. Now, if you're under the age of 30, you have no idea why everybody laughed at that. Well, that's funny to us. Okay, so Moses rescues his, the Israelites out of slavery, and he leads them out of Egypt. And it's at Mount Sinai where God gives Moses and the Israelites the Ten Commandments. God makes a covenant promise to them. He continues what he promised to Abraham, and he makes a contract with them at Mount Sinai, if you will. And the contract comes with some commandments, and the commandments, or God's law, are the terms of the contract. They define the relationship and how the relationship's going to work. They are guidelines and instructions for the Israelites to follow. As the author and creator of life, God has all of the authority and wisdom to give the instructions and the rules to life. My son and I this weekend, uh, my six-year-old son and I have been assembling slowly but surely one of these pine car uh, derbies, little pine cars we've been putting one of these together. You paint it and you put it all together. And over and over again, I'm like, buddy, just, let's just grab the instructions. Let's just grab the instructions. Because listen, the instructions and the rules are there to help you. They're a demonstration of love. They're to be a blessing to you. It's for your well-being. It's, it's how the life is designed to work. But unfortunately, the rest of the story of the Old Testament is the story of the Israelites, despite their best intentions, failing to follow God's law over and over again. See, after Moses dies, Joshua leads the Israelites into the land that God had promised, the promised land. And, and there, once again, they're supposed to be faithful to God and obey and observe His commands. And they do for a little while. And their faithfulness and obedience leads them to conquer their enemies and experience a fruitful and abundant life. But then they begin disobeying God again. They turn to idols or to counterfeit gods, or as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, they served and worshiped the created things rather than the creator. Well, eventually, the Israelites decide they want a king like all the other nations around them. And so God grants them their wish and raises up a king. And under King David's leadership, the Israelites conquered Jerusalem, which is going to be key in just a minute. The Israelites conquered Jerusalem, and King David makes Jerusalem the capital city of Israel. And for the first time in Israel's history, they have a fortified city, a capital, a place that calls, they can call home. And then if you fast forward through the Old Testament, in the books of First and Second Kings, it's the part of the story where all of Israel's kings, one after another, ultimately fail to be faithful to God and be obedient to God's commands. And then there's this 
civil war that happens as a result of their disobedience. And Israel is split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And God sends a series of prophets like Elijah to speak to his people. And the prophets challenge the Israelites, turn back to God, be faithful to God, obey his commands and his law. But ultimately, they do not obey. And the consequences of their sin and of their disobedience is that God allows the Assyrians to come in and invade the northern kingdom. And he dis- the Assyrians destroy the northern kingdom and carry most of the Israelites off into exile. A little bit of time later, the Babylonians come in and they invade the southern kingdom and they destroy much of Jerusalem. They destroy the temple and they carry most of the Israelites into exile. And so this relationship between God and Abraham's family, the Israelites, has one simple pattern God loves them, and he gives them commands to show them how to live, and they try their best, but despite having a few good moments and despite their best intentions, they ultimately disobey, and they fail to live the way God has designed and called them to live. That brings us to, Nezer- to, to the book of Nehemiah. There are two books in, uh, uh, that are, are closely connected, Ezra and Nehemiah, and they are supposed to be read as one cohesive story. And this, in this story of in Ezra and Nehemiah, it, about 50 years after the Babylonians took the Israelites into exile, um, God raises up three leaders to start leading some waves of the Israelites back to Jerusalem. First is, in the book of Ezra, you'll, you'll, you could read about the, a man named Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel took a group of Israelites and they went back to Jerusalem and they rebuilt the temple that Solomon had built and that the Babylonians had destroyed. And about 60 years later, God sends two more guys, Ezra and Nehemiah. And the two of them lead two more waves of people back to Jerusalem. Ezra leads the first wave, and he focuses on rebuilding the community of people. Then Nehemiah leads the third and final wave of Israelites back to Jerusalem. If you've been around church for any length of time, and you've, uh, you've heard a lot of the Old Testament stories, you've probably heard about Nehemiah rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. He successfully rebuilds those walls. But today, we're going to zero in on what happens after Nehemiah rebuilds those walls. Ezra and Nehemiah partner together, and they're going to try to rebuild the spiritual life of the people. Let's pick up the story in Nehemiah chapter 9. Now, these first, first portion of some of these passages are not going to be on the screen. Uh, I'm just going to read them from my Bible. If you want to follow along, you can. If you don't have your Bible, that's okay. Just listen. Uh, We will get some of the passages up on the screen in just a minute. But let's pick it up in Nehemiah chapter 9. Let me set it up. Nehemiah and Ezra, they gather the Israelites together for a festival. And it's kind of like a really big multi-day church service, okay? Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of... Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And they spent and then they spent another quarter in confession and worshiping the Lord their God. So they're fasting and they're praying And this sackcloth and dust, what's that about? Well, sackcloth and dust were symbols of shame and mourning. So you get the tone of this gathering. It's not a real joyful one. 
They are ashamed of their sin, and they're confessing, and they're crying out to the Lord. They're mourning over their sin and disobedience, and they're reading the law of the Lord uh, or the Torah. They're reading God's commands, and they're being convicted of their sin. And it says they read for a quarter of the day. That is three hours. And then it says they spent another three hours confessing their sin and worship the Lord. That's a six-hour church service. Can I get an amen? Who wants to go to about dinner time tonight? Can you, you're like, you're like, no, I'm, I'm ready to go home now. Okay, we get tired after 45 minutes. They, they have a six-hour church service. I asked Paul this week, I said, can I preach for three hours just to illustrate, you know? No, I didn't, that's a lie. Okay, keep on, let's keep going. And the rest of chapter nine, we actually get to see and hear the prayer of their confession. Their confession. So in chapter nine, we're gonna actually, we are, is recorded what they pray and what they say. And it's a fascinating prayer. Essentially, they're going to walk back through their own story and confess it back to God and acknowledge it to God. One author describes this prayer as the longest and richest summary or retelling of the Israelite story in the Old Testament in a single instance. So I'm going to read some portions of it. I'm going to skip some, but I'll highlight some parts. So if you have your Bibles, again, keep following along. We're going to pick up in verse 5. Blessed be your glorious name and may be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, and the earth, and all that is in it, and the seas, and all that is in them. You give life to everything. The multitudes of heaven worship you. They basically just summarize Genesis 1 and 2. God, you're the creator. You're the source of all life. They keep going. You are the Lord God. You chose Abram and brought him out of, the, out of Ur and you named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites and you have kept your promise because you are righteous. They're saying, God, you chose Abraham. You made a covenant with him. This is where our story began and you've kept your promise because you are a righteous God. Verse 9. You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all of his, of his officials and all of the people of his land, for you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. And you made a name for yourself, God, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground, but you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty warriors. By day, you led them with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. They recount and praise God for delivering the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And now this next line of the prayer is really important. Let's put it up on the screen. Verse 13, they say, you came down on Mount Sinai and you spoke to them from heaven and you gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. So here they are. They've returned back to Jerusalem and this generation is now reading the book of the law. They're recounting their own history and heritage and story. And they're going all the way back to the beginning at Mount Sinai. And they're saying, God, you gave us laws and commands and decrees that are just and right and are good. This previous generation had been exiled over 100 years earlier. The previous generation had been exiled over 100 years earlier because of their disobedience to God's laws and commands. And they're saying, hey, listen, we just want to acknowledge what you did, God. Let's keep reading verse 14. 
You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands and decrees and laws through your servant Moses. And in their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven. And in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. And you told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hands to give them. And then verse 16, it says this. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They're saying, we acknowledge God, we recognize, we see, we understand that our ancestors were rebellious and disobedient, and we agree they are arrogant and stiff-necked. We'll skip the next couple of paragraphs, but in the next couple of paragraphs, they recount how God led them into the promised land and that God gave them a season of abundance and filled their homes with good things and gave them peace and rest. And then in verse 28, they say, But as soon as they were at rest, as soon as our people were at rest in the promised land, they again did what was evil in your sight. And then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven and in your compassion you delivered them. And here's the key phrase, time after time. Are you seeing and hearing this pattern? God, you have been righteous. You have been good. You are gracious and compassionate, God. You're a merciful God. But we have been unrighteous. We are evil. God, you did all of this good for us, but we rebelled against you. And yet time after time, you delivered them. You helped them. You helped us. And now they're going to bring this prayer, this confession to themselves to present day. Verse 33. In all that has happened to us, now they're talking about to us today, you have remained righteous while you, and you have acted faithfully while we have acted wickedly. Their conclusion is, verse 37, we are in great distress. And so they're saying, God, our story, our journey with you, our relationship with you, our history with you, God, it's not been a good one from our end. It's deeply troubling and disturbing and we have been unfaithful. We have been wicked. You have been faithful. You have stayed good and compassionate and gracious and merciful. But we keep failing. Now, if you're them, what do you do in this moment? You're there praying. You're part of that six-hour prayer service. What do you do? Well, you won't believe this, but if you read on in chapter 10, here's what they do. They say, we're going to try again. We're going to recommit ourselves we're going to renew our covenant vows. We're going to be faithful to you to God. We're going to obey your laws and commands. And they're so hopeful about this. They're so excited about it that if you read in chapter 10, they give a whole list of all the ways they say, this is, these are the how we're going to obey you. We're going to obey you this way, and we're going to obey you this way, and we're going to obey you this way, and we're going to be faithful this way, and we'll be faithful this way. But guess what happens? Spoiler alert. Sometime later, Nehemiah tours the city and begin to realize the people are once again disobeying God's laws and commands. Once again, they fail to be faithful to God, and despite their best intentions, they fail to be righteous and good. And the book of Nehemiah ends with Nehemiah angry and lashing out at the people, and then he basically tells God, God, I did my best. I tried to renew them. I tried to help them be faithful to you. Now, there are two things I want you to see about the Israelites. They're storing the Old Testament in this kind of summary experience here in Nehemiah. And the first is this, that in spite of their best intentions to be good and to do good, to follow God's law, they ultimately sinned and could not carry it out. 
And you're probably thinking, yeah, Kevin, <laughs> you've spent the last 15 minutes making that very clear, like you've belabored the point. That's exactly the point. That is the point of the Old Testament. God belabors the point over and over and over again. God was making it clear from generation to generation, time after time, God was saying, I am going to love you and be faithful. I want you to see that you cannot be loving and faithful to me, that you have sinned against me, that you are inherently sinful. The second thing I want you to see is this. Their story is our story. Their problem is our problem. It's called the human condition. We want to obey God's law. We want to be and do good, but the bad news is we just cannot carry it out. And this very issue is at the heart of the entire Bible. It's at the heart of Christianity. It's at the heart of the gospel love of Jesus. Here's how uh, Paul says it in Romans chapter 7. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I, here we go. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out, Paul says. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty good summary of my life. My guess is you might agree. Just like the Israelites, just like Paul, we have the desire to do what is good. We have the best of intentions, we can't seem to carry it out. We want to be patient, and we keep being impatient. We want to be kind, but we end up being rude. We want to be unselfish and think about others, but we end up being selfish. We don't want to judge or criticize, but we end up judging and criticizing. We want to be loving, yet we end up being unloving. We don't want to hurt anyone, but we end up hurting. We want to be self-controlled and self-disciplined and make wise choices, yet we keep we keep struggling to make those choices. What's the problem? Why can't we carry it out? What's wrong with us? Well, Paul tells us we have a sinful nature. And then he goes on. Verse 21, Paul says, So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. Ha! Huh. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But, Paul says, I see another law at work within me waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin that's at work within me. Paul says here in verse 22, I delight in God's law. I think that for the most part, the Israelites did delight in God's law. And I think the truth is most people on earth actually delight in God's law to some degree. You don't have to be a Christian. Think about this with me. Think about the Ten Commandments. I think most people would say that they know it's morally wrong to lie and to steal. Most people would say it's morally wrong to murder someone. Most people would say, you know what, I, I, I can see why committing adultery is hurtful. Most people would probably say, you know, dishonoring your parents is not a morally good thing to do. And of course, in the New Testament, Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, takes this moral bar and raises it even higher. I recently heard about an experiment where they took a group of young people who were unchurched and had never heard the Sermon on the Mount. They never read it for themselves. And they let them read the Sermon on the Mount. And the, their response was fascinating. Almost overwhelmingly, all of these young people who read the Sermon on the Mount said they were angry. And they said, that is silly. 
That's silly. Here's what they said. They said, nobody can live that out. They said, don't worry. Don't judge. Don't get angry. Don't have a lustful thought. Love your enemies. And these young people scoffed at it and said, no one can live that out. And they're right. One pastor I heard recently said this, we in the church world get so accustomed to hearing all these lessons and these instructions and we hear the Sermon on the Mount that we get numb to the reality that if you take a fresh and sober read of the Sermon on the Mount, at the end of it, you should end up on your face begging God for mercy because you realize there's no way I can live that out apart from Jesus Christ. It's impossible. Have mercy on me. I'm a wretched Man, that's what Paul says, Romans chapter 7, verse 24. Paul says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? So when Paul sees his sin, he says, I delight in God's law, but I cannot carry it out. I see this another law at work in me, this sin, this rebellious, this, this sense of I cannot do and be good the way I want to be, the way God wants me to be. What a wretched man I am. That's Paul's response. That's how he describes himself. You ever feel that way? Do you ever look at your life and think, look at your sins and look at your weaknesses and your failures and you think, man, what a wretched person I am. This is what the Israelites did over and over and over again. They would see their sin, they would see how wretched they were, and they would cry out to God, rescue us, save us, have mercy on us. And in fact, this verse is a really good summary of how the Old Testament ends. This question is the same question the Old Testament starts with, the question it ends with. Who's going to rescue us from this body that is subject to death? And see, here's the thing. Sitting here today on this side of the cross, we have the answer. We have something where our story now changes from the Israelite story. Our story takes a different turn. This is where our story is drastically different from theirs because we have the answer to the question. Paul goes on, Romans 7, 25, he says this, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ is the answer. He is the one who delivers. And Paul does something here that I'm not sure many of us do very well on a regular basis. Paul sees his sin and he acknowledges he's a wretched man, but then he allows his wretchedness to lead him to worship. It's fascinating. Paul's reflex response is to go from sin to thanksgiving. And wouldn't it be great to live like this on a, on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, at the moment you see and realize and experience your sin or the consequences of your sin and your weakness throughout your day, that in the very next breath, that the very next thought that comes to your mind, the next words out of your mouth are, thanks be to God. How do you live like that? The Israelites, they were ashamed of their sin, and they were confessing and crying out and mourning. But Paul sees his sin, and he worships Jesus, gives thanks and praise. How does he do it? What's the secret? It's in the next verse. Chapter 8, verse 1. Paul writes, there is, Therefore there is now no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. See, this is the difference. We are no longer condemned. You may have heard that before, been told that before. What does that mean? What does that mean? Here's how one commentator defines biblical condemnation. He says this, condemnation in the Bible, Paul's talking about here in Romans 8, 
includes both the idea of rendering a verdict of guilt and the punishment that follows. So it's two sides of the same coin. Condemnation is you're guilty of breaking the law and here's the punishment you deserve that's tied to that guilt. Here's the sentence that you rightly deserve. The gospel of Jesus tells us that Jesus took our guilty verdict and suffered the punishment on our behalf. We're told in the New Testament that we will all stand before the judgment seat of God one day and we will be judged as to whether or not we kept God's law. Each of us will give, us a, will give an account for our lives and we'll each receive a verdict from God, either guilty or innocent. Now here's the bad news. The bad news is that just like the Israelites, we're all guilty. We've all sinned and fallen short. But the good news is this, that Jesus left heaven and he came to earth and he lived an innocent, sinless life. He always obeyed the Father. Jesus was the only person in human history to keep all of the law and to obey all God's commands. And in the most remarkable act of love in human history, Jesus steps into the courtroom, if you will. He goes before the judge and on our behalf, he volunteers to take our guilty verdict and agrees to suffer the punishment we deserve. So what do we do now? I want you to imagine yourself standing in that courtroom. You're sitting in the back. Maybe you're sitting in the back. You're sitting in the back. Sit down. All right, are you seated in the courtroom? So you're, see you're seated in the back of the courtroom. You got the judge on the bench. There's the father. He calls your name. You know what's about to happen. You're going to go stand before the judge. His perfect law, his perfect commands are going to be what you're judged by. You know there's no way possible you're going to get an innocent verdict. And then all of a sudden, in walks Jesus. He says, uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to take Kevin's place. I'll take his verdict. I'll take his guilty verdict and I'll suffer his punishment. And then you see Jesus put in cuffs and led away to go serve your punishment. And you're left standing there. Now you're standing. You were sitting, now you're standing. Because you're in awe of what just happened. <laughs> what do you do? How do you respond in that moment? This is so key to living the Christian life. How do you respond in that moment? You have a choice to make. Will you, overwhelmed by Jesus' love and what he's just done for you, filled with deep gratitude and thanksgiving, in absolute awe, worship Jesus for the rest of your life because of what he just did for you? This is what it means to be a Christian. You willingly say, my life is yours. If you're going to do that for me, if you're going to give your life for me, I will give my life for you. I will put my faith and trust in you, Jesus. Here's how the Apostle Paul describes it in Romans chapter 3. This is a long text. We don't have time to, there's a lot here. It's really rich. Uh, Pastor and author John Piper has once said this is, he thinks it's one of the most 
maybe the most important paragraph in all of the Bible, and so it's really rich, but I'm just going to read it and trust the Holy Spirit's going to speak to you. It's going to do his work. I want to highlight two phrases when we're done. Here we go. Paul says this, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So it doesn't matter, not just the Israelites, it's not just the Jewish people, it's all, everyone, all of creation, all humans have fallen short of the glory. And we're all, we're all justified freely by His grace through the redemption that, come, that came by Jesus, Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement that through the shedding of his blood, and here we go, here's the key phrase, to be received by faith. He did this, God did this to demonstrate, I would say, once again, time after time after time he did in the Old Testament and he did it again in the New Testament. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, not ours. Our faith isn't in our faithfulness. The Christian faith is in God's faithfulness. That it, he did it to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed before him unpunished. Paul's talking about the Jewish people. He's talking about the Israelites. He's saying, while the Israelites suffered some punishment and some consequences of their sin throughout their life, they never got, they, God never exacted his full wrath on them. Why? What was God doing? God was leaving them unpunished. Why? For this very reason, he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So as to be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Oh, there's so much there. We don't have time. Okay. I want to highlight two phrases. Justified freely by his grace and to be received by faith. What does it mean to be justified? We use these words in church. You all don't know what they mean. I don't know what they mean. We don't know what they mean. We're like, oh, yeah. Let me tell you what it means. Okay. It means that first, it means two things. Justified means two things. Number one, it means your debt has been completely paid. You don't owe God anything. That's just half of it. The other half of justification is this. God, all of the righteousness and riches of Christ have now been credited to your account. And so Jesus' sinless, faithful, obedient, perfect performance has been credited to you as if you did that performance. You get that account. That is, oh, Jesus' resume is now your resume. That's what it means to put your faith and trust in Jesus. When you're justified by faith in Jesus, you get Jesus' resume. You get Jesus' report card. And it's unblemished. It's perfect. And there's nothing you can do to add to it. So there you are in the courtroom, you get that innocent verdict that he deserved, and you get freedom. Now, how does it come about? How do you receive that verdict? It's by faith. You put your faith in Christ. For those who put their faith in Christ, those who by faith have received the forgiveness and righteousness of God through Jesus, the trial is over. Folks, the trial is over. You're free to live, leave the courtroom. But most of us live our lives every day like we're still in the courtroom. Pastor and author Tim Keller says that for those who have not grasped this reality, every single day we put ourselves back in the courtroom and every day we put ourselves back on trial. We live every day as though everything we're doing is providing evidence for the prosecution or evidence for the defense. And every day we're living, we're wondering, does God accept me? Has he forgiven me? Am I free to go? And if we're honest, it's a pretty miserable way to live. But if you're a Christ follower... You're not on trial anymore. It's over and you're free. 
Free to do what? Free to give your life to Jesus. Free to worship and serve God. Free to, work, to, to, to love and serve others. Now you don't have to spend your life building up your resume or earning righteousness or trying to add value to your account. You've got all the money God in, in heaven. Ephesians 1 says you've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. There's nothing you can do to add to the verdict. There's nothing you can do to add to your resume or report card. You've been given it all in Christ Jesus. So what do you do? You're free now. Free to worship and serve and faithfully follow God. And, God, and the gospel takes it even a step further. We're not just free from condemnation. The Bible says that we've been adopted as sons and daughters by the judge himself. Romans 8.15 says this, The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you will live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. See, Paul's contrasting something here. He's saying... If you're a Christian and you've been adopted by God, you now relate to God as Father. You don't have to fall back in and be afraid again. In fact, I like the ESV, the way the ESV translates this a little bit better. Look at this one. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. See, that's what Christians were tempted to do every single day. We're tempted. If we're living in the courtroom, we fall back into fear. Fear of what? What are we afraid of? We're afraid of God's condemnation. We're afraid that we're not accepted because we know inherently that we're not good, and so we're afraid God hasn't declared us good. We're afraid of condemnation, but you don't have to be afraid anymore. The Bible tells us that Christ Jesus has set us free. We have been, we have been forgiven and declared righteous. So now, what do we do with the law as Christians? What do we do with the commands? There's a, there's a lot of commands in the New Testament. How, how do we address them? How do we approach them? We still want to obey them, but we approach them so differently than the Israelites do. We have something the Israelites didn't have. We have the cross. We have the spirit of Jesus. We have new hearts. What does it mean to have a new heart? It means to have a new motivation and a new desire. It's now that because when we see what Jesus has done for us, then we're motivated to want to obey God. It's like the first time you fall in love. You remember this? Some of you have been there. Some of you not. I just realized that. Okay. When you first fall in love... You're, you, you see this person's, it's, the love is so clear. And you respond by, your wish is my command. Your wish is my command. When you see how much Jesus has loved you, when you see how much God loves us, then you go, oh, goodness, I, I, I can't believe you. I, you love me this much. Your wish is my command. I want to follow the commands. I, show me. How can I, how can I offer my life as, a, as an offering to you? I, now I follow God's commands out of thanksgiving and joy and freedom. And then when you, when you stumble and you do sin, guess what? You know, there's no condemnation. And so you can worship Jesus. And then when you sin, you can worship Jesus. And then we're told Romans 8 that God works all things together for our good, making us like Jesus. And so even in our sin and weakness, Paul says, I boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so Christ's power may rest on me. So it's a win, 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 win situation for the Christian. Is that not good news? Listen, Keller goes on to write this. Wait, it's on this page. Hold on. Do you realize, Keller writes this, do you, he says this, do you realize that it's only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you get the verdict before the performance? Keller says no other religion or philosophy in life does that. No one offers that. 
No other offer on the table touches the offer of Christianity. Christianity, only in Christianity does the verdict lead to the performance. When you realize you have been set free, you are innocent, you are free, you're adopted as a son and a daughter. God accepts you. He's not going to count your sin against you anymore. You've been going to all the riches of Christ. Uh, your eternity is secure. You're present. God's working all things together. He's going to provide for you. You've got the Spirit of God. You've got the Word of God. You've got the Church of God. You have nothing to be afraid of. It's we want to obey and we want to live for him out of love and gratitude. When you see all that, you're just like, oh man, my life for you is to be a life, an offering of love. It's an offering of gratitude. Now, here's when I give you something practical, okay? If you're a Christian, like Paul, we can actually respond to our sin with worship. And so this week, in the coming weeks, to develop this pattern. Let's, let's a church family. Let's be a church family who develops this pattern that when you see your sin because of Jesus, you can cry out, Abba, Father, with thanksgiving and praise. When the weight of your sin and the brokenness and the weakness of your life, when it comes to bear on you and you begin on a daily, weekly basis in a variety of different ways to realize how vulnerable and unable you are to be righteous, that's when you worship God because he made you righteous. And you cry out, Abba, Father. So whenever you see your sin or consequences of your sin, cry out, Abba, Father, with thanksgiving and praise. Now I want to leave you with two images. First, this one. Charlie. Charlie Brown. I'll confess. This is how I often respond to the sin and weakness of my life. I beat myself up and we beat ourselves up and we judge ourselves and we condemn ourselves and we punish ourselves and we allow ourselves to be, believe the lie of the enemy who says we're worthless and we're deserving of, we're not deserving of God's love. That's the picture of someone who's living in the flesh because here's the reality. Here's the biblical reality. If you are not in Christ. If you don't have the faith of Christ and the trust of Christ, you don't have the spirit of Christ living. If you're not a Christ follower, that's actually the appropriate way to live. That was the posture throughout the Old Testament of the Israelites because the truth is you are condemned in your sin and you are deserving of God's wrath and there should be some sense of shame. But the good news of Jesus Christ is this. Because of what Jesus has done for us, we can respond to our sin like that. That's the posture of a Christian. That's the posture of a Christian. We can worship Jesus in the face of our sin and weaknesses. We can say, what a wretched man I am. Thanks be to God who's delivered me from Jesus Christ our Lord. Do that this week. Just quote that verse. What a wretched man I am. Thanks be to God. Listen, be careful. Because in some Christian circles, when you say, what a wretched man I am, they'll say, oh, no, no, you're not wretched. Don't say that to yourself. Paul described himself like that. It's in the Word of God. See, the gospel isn't that we're not wretched. The gospel is, thanks be to God, Jesus has saved us in spite of our wretchedness. And so in his eyes, we're not wretched anymore. Now, maybe you're here today. Maybe you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust in Christ. Maybe you've never received by faith the forgiveness and the righteousness of Christ. Here's my question to you. If this story is true, if it's true, 
and Jesus has loved you in this way, why wouldn't you want to offer your life to a guy like this? Why wouldn't you want to offer your life to Jesus? Why wouldn't you want to say, I put my faith and trust in you. I'm going to worship you all my days. Let's do just that. Father, we thank you for your love and your grace, and I am so thankful, so thankful for reminding me this week that though I'm a wretched and sinful man, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that now that I, that we as Christ followers, we get to come to you, and in the face of our wretchedness, our sin, we get to worship, and we get to say, thank you, Lord. We are sons and daughters. We get to cry out, Abba, Father. That's our cry. We're not like the Israelites. We don't have to cry in fear or in shame or in mourning. We get to cry with thanksgiving and joy and praise, Abba, Father. And Father, we get to offer you our lives, God. We get to say our lives are yours. Our hearts are yours. Our lives are yours. We want to live a life of obedience to you because of what you've done for us. We love you, Jesus. We pray this all in your name. Amen.